Hey guys, welcome to episode 30 of The Daily Churn. Today, I've got something a little bit different for you guys, which if you listen to the July recap last month, uh, I think you got a bit of a, a preview as to what we're going to discuss today. But basically, a big chunk of my time in July was spent selling my car and then buying a new car, which in this current market is just an absolutely insane process. And the amount of time, effort, energy and just mental health I spent on this process is kind of mind boggling. So I'm going to attempt to walk you guys through exactly what happened on both sides. And hopefully this will help save a little bit of time and and sanity for those of you that are trying to sell a car or trying to buy a car or been thinking about it. So I'll go through on the selling side, you know, all the various marketplaces that I tried for private sales as well as the tech startup-y companies right now that are doing like direct sales, such as Carvana. And on the buying side, just uh, yeah, going through the crazy experience I had at the dealership, which based on the comments that I got on the July recap, it sadly seems like it's a, a pretty common experience. So we'll go through exactly how it went down and how ultimately I still walked away with a brand new car that same day for below MSRP, which is pretty nuts in that environment. But it was definitely no easy feat to get to that point. So yeah, I'll try and get through it all. But there, I think there may be a part two to this. Like I was writing some some notes for this episode and I got kind of excited. And by excited, I mean infuriated. So I like essentially rage typed like 10 pages of notes because I was just, you know, recounting all the things that happened and Yeah, there was a lot. So we'll see how far we get and there may be a part two. So starting with selling a car, this one's a little more straightforward. But I think the first thing that you sort of have to decide is whether you want to do a private sale, like a person to person kind of a sale or go through one of the many companies. And there's also like the option of trading in at a dealership, but that's rarely a good option. And I'll get into this more during the dealership buying a car portion. But for now, yeah, private sales versus selling to a company. And to kind of help make that decision, you should definitely go out and get quotes from every place that will let you get a quote online. Because, you know, there are so many of these online services now that it's pretty trivial to go and just generate a quote for your exact car with the exact condition and the exact mileage and see how much they're offering you. There's just tons of places. I'm going to list off a few. It's not a comprehensive list, but it's some of the ones that I used, like Carvana Vroom, V-R-O-O-M. I'll post these, by the way, on the dailychurnpodcast.com so you don't have to try and decipher all the things I'm saying. But yeah, Vroom, CarGurus, CarMax, just sort of like the the OG Carvana, right? Like you guys remember CarMax, seeing CarMax lots. There's also Shift, and I'm sure many more that I'm missing. There's also like Kelly Blue Book, which I'm sure you guys know from just Kelly Blue Book valuing your car. That's a pretty standard measure of how much your used car is worth. Well, Kelly Blue Book also lets you generate a quote for your car now. But the thing with like Kelly Blue Book and also some other sites like AutoNation where you can get a quote is that what they do is they'll get you a quote, but also forward all of your info out to various dealerships. So you are going to get spammed to death with emails, phone calls, texts, all of that. And so if you are going to use Kelly Blue Book or AutoNation to generate a quote, 
good idea to use a burner email and maybe like a Google Voice phone number or just put in a fake number if you don't actually want to be fielding any calls. So just something to keep in mind with some of those services. Automation is terrible for other reasons, but we'll get into that as well in the dealership part of this episode. But the gist is essentially you go on these sites, generate your quote, and then compare the prices and see how much these various services are going to offer you. And that's a good thing to do because there are just massive price discrepancies between each service. The quote you're going to get from Carvana is going to be very different than the quote you get from CarGurus. And it's going to depend largely on the type of car that you have and how many miles it has on it. Because for example, Carvana tends to, I think, favor more premium cars with less miles because I think their main target buyer market is maybe younger, more techie, and they have a preference for those kinds of vehicles and are willing to pay more for those vehicles. Like when I generated my quote, Carvana was by far the highest price, but that's not the case for everyone. But in my case, it was $10,000 more than what CarGurus was offering me. So that was, I think, over a third of the price of the car in difference between CarGurus and Carvana. And then similarly, CarMax offered, I think, $7,000 less. Vroom offered $5,000 less. But I've also seen threads where people are having the opposite experience of that, where Carvana is offering lower than like Shift or some of these other services. And so it really just depends which is why it's good to just go in and get your quote and see which one's the best one. Then once you have your best quote, that's when you should go and see if you can do better privately because that sort of sets like a base price for your car that you want to try and beat. And so for me, I started at around $5,000 above what Carvana was offering with the idea that there'd be negotiations and I'd be dropping it far below that $5,000 premium. And eventually, I actually just listed it for $2,000 above what Carvana offered, which was sort of my floor, like any lower than that, it wouldn't really be worth it to do private party over doing like a Carvana. Because with private party, there's a whole bunch of extra logistics that you have to keep in mind. So for those of you guys who haven't done a private party sale before, which I hadn't before this either, there's a bunch of marketplaces you can use to essentially list your car. So you've got Facebook Marketplace, which for a car listing is free to list, and you can renew that listing once a week. It essentially expires after a week, and you get the option to renew it after the expiration happens. The nice thing with Facebook is it will show how many people have viewed your ad, how many people have clicked it, and, you know, it's Facebook, so it's pretty nice to use. Like the UI is pretty easy and understandable compared to Craigslist, which is still a pretty popular way to sell your car. On Craigslist, they charge $5 per listing and you can list your car multiple times in different cities. But you probably don't need to do this. Like if you live in one city and another city is 50 miles away, your listing will still show up when someone searches for the city that's further away. It will just show near the bottom. But if you want, you can post it into multiple places. I did that for a few different cities around my area. You can also repost your posting for another $5 because essentially after a few days, your posting is going to be kind of buried because it's kind of arranged by the freshest, newest listings first. So reposting bumps your post back up to the top, but you do have to pay another $5. There's also an app called OfferUp, which a lot of people use to just sell all kinds of things, really. But you can sell your car on there as well. And they'll let you do one free car listing 
I believe it's like every week or every month you get to put your car up there without having to pay a listing fee. And if you want to do more vehicles or more listings, then you do have to pay. So that's not a bad option. I liked that it was an app and pretty easy to use and browse. So I gave OfferUp a try. I also read some good things about AutoTrader, which is a website where they charge $49 to list your car, but you get free renewals. And so I didn't do it because 49 seemed a little steep at the time compared to the other services. But I do remember seeing a couple Reddit comments where people had some success with AutoTrader. So maybe something to try if you want. But those are the main private party marketplaces that you can use to list your car. I'm sure there's more that I missed. So please do leave a comment if you have other ones that worked well for you. But the main issues with private listings, at least in my experience, are just that people are so flaky. Like OfferUp and Facebook were actually the worst. I think it's because there are apps. So it's really easy for people to browse and to message you and then to just stop responding. Like you'll get a lot of views and clicks and messages. But for me, none of those actually turned into scheduling a test drive or coming out to see the car. I think my Facebook ad had like two, 300 clicks of people looking at it. And I had maybe 10 to 15 people message me, but it all resulted in nothing other than time spent responding and posting those ads. Craigslist actually turned out to be a lot more fruitful because Craigslist is sort of the the OG place to sell your car. Like it's kind of old school and the mobile experience is terrible on Craigslist. So it's mainly people on desktop, which seems to result in more serious buyers. Like people are sending you emails and texts. And yeah, there's just something about that process that seems to be more conducive to car selling, despite the interface just being, you know, literally from 1995. The funny thing with Craigslist, though, is that when you search for your car, like a car that's similar to yours to see what other people are listing it for, the results you get are primarily all Carvana ads. Like, I think Carvana probably posts thousands of new car ads to Craigslist every day. Essentially, every car that Carvana gets into their inventory, they make a Craigslist ad for. So the problem with this is that your post will most likely get buried pretty deep within just a couple days. So most of the responses that you get on Craigslist are actually going to be within that first day and most likely within that first couple of hours of your posting. And that's where you're incentivized to then refresh your post every few days to kind of bump it back to the top. But yeah, kind of crazy that Carvana has basically completely spammed Craigslist used car listings. And I think they're allowed to do it because they're not actually breaking any Craigslist rules. And I imagine Craigslist is making a ton of money from all the Carvana ads. So kind of a win-win for them, but kind of sucks for you trying to sell your car on Craigslist. That said, Craigslist was still the most fruitful. Like I had some pretty good email back and forths with potential buyers, a decent number of text inquiries, even a couple phone calls where they wanted to ask questions about the car. I mean, there were also a few like clearly scam inquiries that are fairly easy to just avoid. But just keep in mind that there's a lot of scammers too on Craigslist. But anyways, after about like a week, I actually ended up scheduling three people to come see and test drive the car. And those three people were all sourced through Craigslist. So a quick segue for those of you who haven't like sold a car in person before. There's a whole bunch of things that you don't really think about until you have to do it yourself. Like just the logistics of how do you arrange a test drive with a random stranger 
on the internet because, for example, I had a manual car that I was selling. And there's a real risk of damaging a manual car if you don't know how to drive stick. And like I read a Reddit horror story of a guy who sold his car to a person who pretended to know how to drive manual. And after the buyer paid for the car and everything and drove away, the buyer essentially rode the clutch for five miles. And at some point on the freeway, the car failed. The clutch was essentially completely burnt out. And the buyer tried to return the car saying that like it was pre-existing damage and that, you know, you shouldn't have sold me a broken car, which, you know, it's the internet. You're going to have people like this, right? And so the guy was like on Reddit trying to seek advice about what he should do because the guy wanted his money back and said he was going to call the cops for selling him a broken car. And luckily, once the payment is made and the bill of sale is signed and the guy drives away, it's done. Like you contact the DMV immediately to release liability. And there's nothing else you need to do. Contractually, you're good. So if the guy wants to call the cops and say you sold him a broken car, even if you sold him a broken car, it's now on him because he should have inspected it before he got the car and took a test drive and all that stuff. So weird things like that do happen when you do a private party sale. But even if you don't get a crazy buyer, there's just a whole bunch of logistics that you still have to figure out regardless. Like they want to do a test drive, but what happens if they crash your car during the test drive, like from an insurance and liability perspective, who's at fault? Are you covered? Do you go with them on the test drive or do you let them go solo? Or what if just on the test drive, they drive poorly and they damage your car? What do you do? How do you get them to pay for the damage? So all of that requires time and energy for you to figure out how to mitigate some of these risks of doing a private sale and a test drive. And so some of the suggestions that I saw online were like taking photos of their driver's license when you meet up, taking photos of their current insurance, all kind of awkward, you know, like just seeing a random stranger and then asking him for his driver's license and then taking pictures of it. Like if I was on the other end of that, I don't know how I feel about someone having pictures of my driver's license, but as the seller, you got to protect yourself, right? And so that's something that you probably should do along with just standard Craigslist safe practices of like meeting in a public place, preferably not your house unless you want them to know where you live. And more specifically for buying a car, do you ask them to bring the payment with them? Because you only want serious people, right, that are willing to pay that day, but no one wants to carry $20,000 in cash to a Craigslist meet and no one wants to get a cashier's check unless they want to buy the car, but they're not sure they want to buy the car until they test drive and maybe haggle on the price. So they can't get the cashier's check because cashier's checks are written for a specific amount, which kind of creates this chicken and egg problem when you're trying to filter for quote unquote serious buyers only. So then you've got to think about a way to kind of filter for people who are willing to go to the bank that day to get a cashier's check if they like the test drive. But there's no real way to confirm this. Like they can say that they are very serious and would be willing to get a cashier's check, but they could just be saying that. And the thing with payment too is that you do want to take specifically a cashier's check or cash if the amount isn't super high, unless you feel comfortable walking around with multiple tens of thousands of dollars in cash. But even with cashier's checks, you have to be extra safe. You ideally would go to the bank with them to get their cashier's check so you can see the bank printing it so that you know it's a real cashier's check. 
and then have them drive with you to your bank to go cash the cashier's check so that you know the money is in your account before you hand over your keys because there are fake cashier's checks going around. So going to the bank, either their bank or more ideally your bank to cash it is sort of a a necessary step. So yeah, all of these little logistics that I'd never thought about before that I probably spent like 10, 15 hours on Reddit and the internet and forums and stuff. And I, I felt pretty ready for my three test drives that I had scheduled, as well as just like ready to negotiate the price. Because a common thing with private sales is that there's going to be a lot of haggling. So I would kind of like practiced my fake reaction to their lowball offer. And I had like my fake bottom price that was a couple thousand dollars below the asking, but I also had my real bottom price, the real price where I would turn them down, which was the $2,000 above the Carvana price. Like all of that stuff figured out, just kind of playing through my head, ready to meet up. And I'll give you guys a second to guess what happened. Yep, they all flaked. No one showed up. So one guy texted and said that he had work that suddenly came up on a Saturday morning. And that he'd try to come in the afternoon instead. And uh, yeah, never heard from him again. Then another guy had buyer's remorse and wrote a very long email explaining why he changed his mind at the last minute. Like, you know, he was making an emotional decision and his wife wouldn't be happy if he came home with this car instead of this other car that they really needed. Like a whole thing. Um, Then finally, the last guy just didn't show, didn't answer texts or emails, have not heard from him since. So basically a week's worth of effort all for nil. And at that point, I was just like ready to be done with it. But I also didn't want to give up yet. So I go on Craigslist and Facebook Marketplace and offer up and I lower the price by $3,000 so that it's now only $2,000 above the Carvana price. And that was sort of my floor where it just wouldn't really be worth it to me to do a private sale anymore. I would just go with Carvana if the price was any lower. Like I maybe would have let it go for a thousand dollars above Carvana, but I did want to leave myself a little bit of wiggle room because guaranteed they're going to try and talk down the price. And it makes everybody feel good if you can lower it a little bit. So $2,000 above Carvana is what I relisted at and decided to give it another week. Sadly, the second go around was even worse in terms of the quality of the inquiries I was getting. Like I didn't end up scheduling anything that week. It was just lowball offers left and right. I had one guy that asked if I would sell it for below the Carvana price because I wrote in the description what the Carvana price was. And he asked if I would take a price below the Carvana price. Which is just like, why, why would you even ask that? Why would I meet up with you and do a test drive for a price below Carvana when I could just go with Carvana? So anyways, yeah, a lot of those responses in that second week were just time wasters like that. And uh, yeah, after the second week, all of my listings expired and I didn't have any showings or test drives scheduled. So essentially two solid weeks of research, Craigslist messages, getting flaked on, all of that with nothing to show for it makes it hard for me to recommend private sales to anyone when you have these startups offering such good prices. So I don't think I would do it again. That amount of effort was not worth $2,000. I'd rather just churn something and make the $2,000 with way less effort. But you know, you don't know until you try and every car and every market, I think is going to be different. So your mileage may vary. But for me, at the end of the two weeks, that was also when my Carvana quote was expiring that same day. 
And yeah, went in, accepted the quote. And 10 minutes later, I was done. Carvana was literally going to come in two days and grab my car. And my main motivation for picking Carvana over some of the other services was really just the price. Like they were the highest bidder by far compared to the other places I got quotes from. And pretty much every Reddit thread that I came across about Carvana, the sellers only had positive things to say. I don't think I ran across one negative Carvana post, which is pretty amazing. And I think part of the reason why people like it so much is because it's so easy. There's no test driving. They'll come to your house. It's super easy to schedule that appointment. It was all done online. Never had to talk to a person. The whole online process only took 10 minutes to schedule. Their inspection, when they actually came to inspect the car, is a joke. So I covered it a little bit in the July recap of that Carvana process. But just to sum it up real quick, they came in a single car, two people, in and out in 15 minutes. The passenger was the one that was going to drive away with my car. But sometimes they'll tow your car depending. But I live in kind of a hilly, mountainy area with nothing around and like a dirt road. So they probably didn't want to bring a tow truck. And during the inspection, yeah, they didn't even pop open the hood. Just kind of did a circle around. It was about as much inspection as you get at like an Avis or a National. You know, very, very straightforward. And the only thing I had an issue with was that the ACH payment that they were going to send me for my car got stuck in their system for a week because their agent had an iPad and she couldn't get cell service at my house. And so that request just sort of never finalized until I called them. But you can very easily avoid this by just requesting a check instead and they'll bring it with them. So if you're worried about your payment getting stuck, you'll have a check you can cash that same day. So all in all, very smooth with Carvana. I'd also read some pretty good things with Shift which is a company that's, I think, pretty similar to Carvana in terms of how they operate, like they'll come to your house and all that good stuff. But from what I read, Shift is a little bit more tedious. So Shift will like call you to follow up. And then when they pick up the car, they'll test drive it for a couple miles just to make sure things are all good, whereas Carvana doesn't do that at all. Then their contract also has a cancellation clause, which basically allows them to, even after taking your car, to then cancel the contract and return your car and rescind the payment if they discover something grossly misrepresented. So I think for the most part, most people won't run into issues with this cancellation clause. It's only if you're being blatantly shady with your car and there's serious issues with it that they can then exercise that cancellation clause, whereas Carvana doesn't have that. So again, another key difference. I don't think it will impact most people, but something to keep in mind. Mainly though, aside from those differences, it was really just the price that made me pick Carvana over Shift. But of course, all of this is going to be very different depending on the car that you're selling. And so your situation might be reversed where Shift is offering better than Carvana. But again, kind of just go in, get the quotes and see where it lands. And with the private sales, same kind of thing. You know, you might get lucky or there might be really good demand for the kind of car you're selling. And so things may go really smoothly. But for me, that wasn't the case. And I wish I had just done Carvana from the start and saved myself those two weeks because it was literally two weeks of essentially part-time effort trying to sell this car privately versus 15 minutes with Carvana. And I know this sounds like a Carvana ad right now, but it, it, it's true. You know, I, I immediately bought Carvana stock after they picked up my car. Like that's how excited I was about Carvana. Because after two weeks of headaches and flaky buyers, 
I don't think I would ever do a private sale again, assuming these companies still keep offering such good prices for used cars, which may not be the case once the market kind of readjusts. But if you have the time and the energy to try a private sale and put a couple weeks into it, no harm in trying. It doesn't cost you anything except your time and your energy. But at least for me, I was very happy when Carvana picked up the car and I thought that the hard part was over. Like, finally done with this selling thing, now for the fun part of buying a new car, which looking back seems so naive now. But yeah, I think that's a a good segue to move into the part of the episode that I've been really excited about, which is buying a car from a car dealership. So buying a car is kind of a a crazy experience right now for everyone with just the way chip shortages are affecting inventory and driving up used car prices, which I'm, I'm sure you've already read about or heard about. But how it used to be when you wanted to buy a car, the smart way was that you would hit up various dealerships and contact their internet broker via email and see which one would offer you the best price below invoice and you'd shop around. Most dealerships would have the car that you wanted or could easily order it, and you'd reach out to five or six of them and get the best internet quote, and then pit the top two or three against each other and see which one could offer you the best price at the end. And whoever gave you the best price is the one you went with, and you showed up and you grabbed your car, and that was it. Like my first car that I bought, I paid for entirely online and just picked it up when it was ready. And I never set foot into a dealership because even back then you would still get screwed at the dealership, but it was very much avoidable. It was the people who hadn't done the research showing up to the dealership and letting the salespeople take advantage of them. But the more internet savvy folks would check the forums and see where people were posting, which internet broker had the best price. Like I flew to pick up my car from a dealership that was known to have an internet broker that was offering, I think, $1,000 below invoice. And people were chatting about that and recommending him, you know? That's how I bought my first car. The current environment, though, has just kind of been flipped completely upside down. Used car prices cost almost as much as the new cars. In fact, on Carvana, some used cars that are only a year or two old are actually going for more than a new car because with Carvana, you can get that car the next day, essentially. Whereas the new car that you want from a dealership, you may have to wait three, four months on a wait list before you get the car. So in some cases, pricing is being inverted where it's actually more expensive to get a used car that someone's had for two years and put 10,000 miles on that costs more than a brand new car. Pretty crazy, but that's where we are at with the chip shortages. And in terms of just inventory, yeah, there are barely any cars that are on a dealership lot that aren't already spoken for. So if you drive past the dealership, you will see cars there still. But the majority of the cars they have sitting on that lot are just cars that are waiting for their buyer to pick it up because that person reserved that car three, four months ago. Like one of the dealerships that I called had 500 people on their wait list for incoming inventory. And this was for a Toyota. So 500 people had already spoken for the next 500 cars they had coming in. So it really sort of becomes a take what you can get mentality. Like if you tell a dealer that you want that car in that new orange color that they have, they're going to laugh and they're going to tell you that that's going to be a six to eight month wait instead of just a gray or a black or a white car, which is the ones they receive the most of, might only be a one or two month wait. 
So those kinds of preferences, like color, are being thrown out the window. People are just literally scrambling to get any car they can get because the demand is so much greater than the supply right now. So, of course, dealers are taking advantage of this imbalance, right? They're adding markups to the cars with different levels of transparency. So some dealers are actually super transparent. They'll just have a line item when you look at the car online that says market adjustment fee. And it's exactly what it is, is that we can sell it to you for $5,000 more because we barely have any of these cars and people will pay $5,000 more. And we're just going to tell you that's a market adjustment fee, which sucks, but at least they're being quite transparent about it. And, you know, I ran across a few of those dealers in my research and uh, others are less transparent. So they'll have these like dealer added packages that are mandatory, which inflates MSRP because essentially if they want to add mud flaps to the car and charge $800 for the mud flaps, which costs maybe like $25 to add on to the car, they can still say that they're selling the car at MSRP because it's the MSRP of the car from the factory with the various packages on already. Then the MSRP of the dealer added packages equals the end MSRP. And so they can say they're still selling it for MSRP, even though the price is being inflated by this mandatory dealer added mud flap, right? And so that's what the majority of dealerships are doing is adding these packages and you can't turn them down. They're mandatory packages. A few of them will let you say you don't want these dealer packages if you're putting yourself on the wait list and ordering a car that's way out in the future. But those were rare of the ones that I called. And so you have people flying out of state just to buy from a dealer that's willing to waive these mandatory added packages or are just selling for MSRP to begin with, you know, depending on the car, depending on the state, like a truck might not be as popular in New York versus in Texas. And so you would fly to New York to get your truck, for example, then drive it home. And so people are flying out of state, people waiting two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight months for their car. So yeah, it's a it's a battlefield out there to just to even get a car. And it was only after doing all the research that it really dawned on me just how crazy things are right now. But you know, we needed a car to replace the one that we just sold. And so I put in the time, put in the research, made sure I did everything quote unquote right. Like I called probably 20, 25 dealers, pretty much every Toyota dealership in my state as well as a few out of state and had them look up their inventory, ask them how long their wait lists were, when their system refreshes, which turns out for Toyota is every two weeks on a Tuesday, I think. Um, So asked about all that stuff and confirmed their pricing, like how much are you selling above MSRP? Are the dealer packages removable, etc.? So the full, full set of questions to every dealer I called And eventually, we actually found a dealer that, more surprisingly, had the exact model that we wanted on their lot that very day. And they were selling it for below MSRP. So I was just so excited. Like I thought that, hey, all that time I put in had paid off and... You know, the the car gods were rewarding my persistence and time by blessing us with this magical car that was on the lot that I didn't really think to ask why this car was on the lot right now and why is it below MSRP. I was just really, really stoked to have stumbled on the winning car lottery ticket, you know, and 
I confirmed with them twice over the phone. My exact words to them, I think, were, is this car available? And is this price that I'm seeing online the -the out-the-door price? And both times they said, yes, this is the price other than taxes and registration fees that we're selling the car for. We can't hold the car for you, but if you make it over here and the car is still here, it's yours. And in hindsight, I'm, I'm realizing what that car really was for them was a doorbuster, like a, like a Black Friday kind of a doorbuster. The goal was to lure you into the dealership. And unlike a Black Friday doorbuster, they never had any intention of actually selling the car for that price. But they wanted you to come into the dealership so that they could work you. So for me, this is where things get kind of fascinating, right? Because as churners, we're all used to deals and and Black Friday sales and all this stuff. But what's interesting with the dealership is how are they able or allowed to blatantly lie to you on the phone? Because imagine if this was your bank or Best Buy literally lying to you about the price. Like imagine a Black Friday doorbuster at Walmart being like this TV is going for $50. Everyone charges in and then they tell you the TV is $300. Could you imagine the shitstorm that would happen? Yet this exact thing happens all day, every day at dealerships. So how do they get away with it? How does this dealership still have over a thousand four star reviews on Google? Right? Like it's really mind boggling. And then I guess more specific to our experience at this dealership, you might be wondering, you know, how did we eventually get them to sell this fake doorbuster car to us? And what exactly took five hours of our time? Like what goes down in those five hours? And so, yeah, this is why I've been excited to do this part of the episode because I'm going to give you guys the full play by play of exactly what happened. And this is how I ended up with like over 10 pages of notes because I've essentially been in my mind this past week reliving that experience and getting quite angry as I type these notes. But hopefully this will be helpful for you guys when it's your turn to buy a car or at minimum entertaining to get a bit of a peek into how this industry works. So on a high level, kind of almost philosophically, I think it all comes down to the art of the scam, like the art form of scamming people out of money. Because, you know, I've I've been scammed many times. If you travel anywhere, you are going to get scammed in other countries like um, visiting India and going to those markets. People will try to sell you things for 10 times the price they're selling that same item to locals. And in the end, you know, you sort of have to question, is 30 minutes of haggling with this person worth what ultimately amounts to like $5? And oftentimes it's no, and you just end up paying 10x the price. When we were visiting Thailand, I remember getting into a cab with some friends. And this was before like international data plans and Google Maps when you're traveling abroad and stuff like that. So we just asked the cab driver to take us to the nearest bar that he likes. And he drives us like 45 minutes to this shitty bar in the middle of nowhere where he gets a kickback for bringing these people to the bar. In Egypt, the minute you get out of a cab or tour bus, hordes of children will swarm you to sell souvenirs like postcards and pens and crappy little bookmarks with hieroglyphics on them, all that stuff. Like literally 20 to 50 kids will follow you around, you know, and all of their proceeds 
go to their handlers and you still end up buying some anyway because you feel sorry for the kids, right? So like I'm, I'm pretty used to getting scammed, at least when I'm traveling. The sort of theme, I think, with all of those, those scams is that they're quite simple, they're blatant, and they're very shameless, like just in your face, you know you're getting scammed. But dealerships are sort of in this weird area. It's like, what if we took a street scam and pumped billions of dollars behind it? What would that look like? And so for me, the whole dealership experience ended up feeling super surreal. Like I was having a hard time trying to describe what happened to my friend the other day when I tried to tell him about the car that we bought and the five hours that we we spent with the dealership. And the best analogy that I could come up with was that let's say you get a flyer that the store is selling ice cream for a dollar all day. And you're like, wow, $1 ice creams, right? And you call them and you confirm, is ice cream really a dollar here? And they're like, yeah, it's a dollar here. So you bring your whole family there. Like it's like a 30, 40 minute drive, but it's a dollar ice cream and you have 10 kids, right? And this is a great deal. So you bring your family, you all get there. Everyone grabs their ice cream. Everyone's pretty happy. And you get to the checkout counter and they ring you up for $4.50 for each ice cream, not a dollar. And you're like, what the hell is going on? You said it was going to be a dollar. And they're like, well, you know, the spoons, they cost money. And so do the napkins and the cup. And you have to have those. Like, you can't just put ice cream in your hands and leave. You have to buy these things. And, you know, the the ice cream, too, is mixed with organic milk. And so that's an extra dollar. And so you're like, well, uh, all right. I mean, I, I guess I have to have like the cup and stuff, but can I get one without the organic milk? And they're like, no, we, we've already mixed the organic milk in. And he's telling you this as he crushes an Oreo on top of it, which, by the way, is also an extra dollar and also mandatory because it'll taste better. And, you know, if you don't want to cause a scene, you drove all the way out here. Your whole family's here. What, what are you going to do? You're going to put 10 ice creams back? Your kids are crying. They want the ice cream. And there's literally a line forming behind you. You kind of have to buy this ice cream. So now imagine this ice cream store is 10,000 square feet and they have 500 ice cream dispensers and they employ 100 people. And also imagine this store generates millions of dollars in sales per day, which is absolutely crazy because this store actually makes zero dollars on the ice cream itself. Like their ice cream supplier just ships them the ice cream and charges them a dollar, which is how much they charge you for the ice cream. So in fact, all of the money that they make is only from the add-ons. So now imagine this store sells cars instead of ice cream. And ta-da, you have a car dealership. Because here's the thing with the cars that the dealership is selling. The manufacturers are the ones that make money on those cars. Toyota is the one that makes money on the cars. The dealerships are just the middlemen to get the car to you. And so, yeah, they take a small cut of the profits on the cars because Toyota wants to incentivize them to sell more of their cars. But dealer add-ons are 100% profit. All of it goes straight to the dealership and is not shared with Toyota. Those mud flaps they charge $800 for is $775 in straight profit and $25 for the cost of the mud flaps. And the best part with these add-ons for them is that they don't have to wait on add-on inventory. There's no shortage of mud flaps. There is a shortage of cars, and so they're limited on how many cars they can sell, but they can add mud flaps all day, 
all of these toppings they're adding on your car are done in-house. So it's one car with an infinite number of toppings they can add onto it, right? So of course, with a dealership like this ice cream store, everything is geared towards selling you add-ons. This is like getting scammed at a marketplace in India if the marketplace had trillions of dollars in funding to try and get you to buy an overpriced pair of sunglasses. And you know, dealerships have really made this an art form. Like every detail at the dealership is being obsessed over. They are the iPhone or Apple of ice cream shops. Everything has been intentionally designed to maximize taking your money. I'm talking like the architectural layout of where things are placed, the room temperature, the chain of command, the whole customer experience, the business structure, all of that has been thoughtfully designed to get more of your money. And profit for a dealership is not just some vague high-level thing that businesses talk about, like that they're trying to maximize profits by making their supply chains more efficient or cutting costs and improving training, etc. Sure, those can help boost a dealership's profit, but the profit at a dealership can be very directly influenced by the quality of the scam they're running. You are the profit. The more add-ons they sell you, the more direct, tangible boost to profits they have. It's really that simple and I think kind of explains why everyone at the dealership is in on it and is so hyper-focused on conning you. So getting back to the story, we find the dealership with this amazing price and they had the inventory and we drive straight down. It's like an hour each way for us to get over there, which is why we were like, really confirming the price because we didn't want to spend two hours driving for nothing. And yeah, they confirmed the price, the cars on the lot, and we arrived at the dealership around 5 p.m. First impressions were very positive. You know, it's a really nice building, super modern, floor to ceiling windows, the ceilings go up 30, 40 feet, tons of natural light. They've got this open floor plan layout, kind of like a, a co-working space where it just felt very welcoming, right? Very open. And I remember even saying to my wife when we sat down, like, wow, this doesn't feel slimy at all. Like, I love the table concept and I, I like how they're trying to move away from that image of being shady. So we're seated at the table and someone comes over to show us the car. But the guy that was coming to show us the car wasn't the salesman that we'd spoken to on the phone, which I should have realized now was kind of a red flag. For the ease of uh, referring to these guys, let's say the phone guy, the one that confirmed the price is salesman one and this new guy is salesman two. And salesman one is busy helping another customer. Like I can see him with other people. So it all seems pretty legit. The salesman two is going to show us the car, right? So we go outside, he takes us to the car and it's in this huge lot, like multiple acre lot that holds literally thousands of cars. And he tells me they used to sell almost a thousand cars a week. Because we went to one of the biggest chains, and I'll just say their name here, it's AutoNation. And now they're down to selling maybe a couple hundred cars a week due to the shortages. But anyways, he shows us the car and we decide to skip the test drive because we're in a bit of a rush. Like we left our dogs at home to just come get this car, thinking it would be maybe like an hour or two at most to do the paperwork. And then we can drive home and feed the dogs dinner and... All these naive thoughts we had before the experience really kicked in. So he walks us back into the dealership and we sit back down and the paperwork starts. 
And just FYI, some of the, the payment logistics that you should keep in mind when going to a dealer is that you must have a check or a cashier's check handy if you want to walk away with that car the same day. Like a wire transfer is accepted, but they won't give you the car until the wire transfer clears. And it's not instant. So even though your wire sends instantly to the dealership, it goes into this big dealership account that takes them a few days to process. And so a wire transfer is actually slower. So just FYI, bring a cashier's check. Credit cards will only work for the deposit. They will let you use your credit card when you put a deposit on the car. But if you're trying to get the car the same day, there's no deposits, right? You're, you need to pay in full for that car that day. So a credit card wasn't an option for us either. So cashier's check really is the most ideal way to pay because cashier's check, your bank verifies that you already have the funds. The dealership can accept it that same day and you can walk away with the car. But yeah, that was the, the first kind of little hurdle, but wasn't a big deal. So we get back to doing the paperwork. We sign a bunch of like forms that have them pull your credit and it's a hard pull to verify your credit worthiness. They scan your driver's license. You fill out forms with your address, all of that good stuff. I think we even showed a utility bill or something. And so it's like a stack of paperwork and he takes it away and disappears for 45 minutes. And my wife and I at this point are still kind of in denial about what was about to happen. And so we were just like, oh, they must be really backed up today for him to take 45 minutes to, to process these forms. But, you know, 45 minutes, we just sit there waiting and he comes back eventually with those forms. And now he also has the invoice form for us to sign. And that's where the real fun begins because that invoice form has the car listed for $5,000 higher than the quote that's online and confirmed twice over the phone. So everything had been pretty chill up to that point. And this was sort of, I guess, what shocked us out of our like stupor of thinking that this would be an easy process. You know, like my Turner Spidey sense suddenly activated like a, like a scene out of a comic book where the color changes and now you see reality for the first time and you're like, oh no, we've, we've entered the upside down. And so I start trying to decipher the differences between their quote and the one they gave me earlier when I wasn't in person. The main differences were that there was no discount from MSRP, whereas the other quote had like $1,500 off of MSRP. Because remember, this is sort of their doorbuster car, right? They're trying to get you into the dealership. But this new invoice did not have that discount. And there was no discount for getting the quote online. So one thing AutoNation does is they have a website and you can look up the cars and see the price. And if you get the quote done online, they add an extra $500 off as a discount for getting an e-quote. So that $500 e-quote was also gone. And I shit you not, there were eight separate dealer add-ons tacked onto this invoice sheet. There was stuff like windshield protection package, interior protection package, rain-resistant wiper blades and mud flaps for like $800, uh, window tinting. Then additionally, like a two-year windshield protection, which was a separate item from the windshield protection package, another two-year interior protection, which was separate, I guess, from the interior protection package. All of these items had been added on. And that's where we get to what I'll call dealer strategy number one. Because I, as I was writing these notes, I listed all the strategies and there's many, many strategies. But this is the first one. 
And strategy number one from the dealer is to overload and overwhelm. Where do you even start to argue this invoice sheet, right? You see this and you're shocked into this state of like, uh oh, we're in fight or flight mode where you have less ability to logically think because your blood is pumping, your adrenaline is now sort of rushing and it becomes noticeably harder for you to do things like math, like figuring out and deciphering this quote, especially with the sales guy hovering over you. And so it takes me a second to just sort of recompose myself. And I say to him, I don't want or need any of these options. And he goes, I'm afraid they're, they're mandatory. There's nothing I can do. And I pull out my printouts because I printed everything out. Actually, that's buyer strategy number one, which is document everything and bring printouts because those printouts clearly stated the various discounts. And I show him these and I tell him that, hey, I confirmed this price twice over the phone to which he replies, you didn't talk to me. I I don't know what salesman one said. And that is where we get to dealer strategy number two, which is playing dumb. And they'll use that a lot throughout the course of these five hours. And, you know, he's like, I'll I'll see what I can do, but I got to ask my manager. And that's where we get to dealer strategy number three, which is playing the good cop. Because salesmen at a car dealership, including the ones we interacted with, including this guy, they are some of the nicest, most helpful people you'll probably ever interact with. And, you know, this is a this is a new age, right? These aren't like the caricatures of a car salesman. They don't come off sleazy at all. They just come off like normal, friendly people that are really batting for you. You know, they're really trying to battle their managers to get you the best price. And that's where we get to dealer strategy number four, which is layering and chain of command. Because in order for the salesman to maintain this good cop persona, there needs to be a bad cop that's far away who can deflect the negative energy. And these are their managers. So having that layer really enables the salesman to maintain good cop and also play dumb. Layering and chain of command really is one of the foundational strategies that a dealership employs because even the architecture is purposefully designed around this kind of an interaction. So every dealership is a little different, but AutoNation, at least, I think has a pretty standardized format because they're sort of the in and out of dealerships. They're very much a volume business. And the way they have it set up is that managers are in a far corner in the far end away from customers. And only salespeople are allowed into that area, but you can see into it. It's a corner room that's made of glass. It's like a fishbowl. And inside this fishbowl, they have an L-shaped counter, kind of like a, a car rental agency. And they have two or three managers sitting at desks behind this L-shaped counter. And salesmen will go into this fishbowl and they'll wait at the counter for a manager to like roll over in his swivel chair and you'll see them chatting for a bit. But mostly the salesmen are just waiting around pretending to look busy on their iPad. And so the key things to note in that setup is that for them, it's important that you can see them, right? That you can see this chain of command. You can see that your salesman is at the mercy of their manager, that the salesman has to stand versus the manager is sitting. The salesman has to wait and request the manager's time. And all of that allows the salesman to maintain this good cop, I'm just one of you kind of a role. But it's also important that they're far away. So you can't actually hear what's going on there or enter the area, but you can see them. So I think that's kind of a 
a new advancement in dealership scamming is this illusion of transparency. It's important that they're visible, but also important for them that they're inaccessible. Like it is basically impossible to speak to one of these managers. If you ask your salesman for the manager, that's the cue for the salesman to go to the manager area and decide on the next negotiation or concession that he's going to give you. And he's going to come back and he's not going to come back with the manager. He's going to come back with an update from the manager. So getting back to the story, Salesman 2 has my printouts and he has my request that we remove all of these add-ons. And again, he's gone for almost 45 minutes while we literally sit at a table and do nothing. Like we're just scrolling our phones, just waiting. He finally comes back after 45 minutes. Again, is very apologetic. The managers are really busy today, which of course is BS. Like if churning out cars quickly was your priority, You'd think you'd have as many people working that manager desk as In-N-Out does making their fries. But of course, there's only two managers swiveling around. And that's because dealer strategy number five is making you wait. And by the way, I'll put all these various uh, strategies that I I came up with on the website at thedailychurnpodcast.com. So don't need to write these down or anything. And who knows, maybe one day I'll I'll publish uh, an ebook on Amazon for a dollar that has all of these strategies. But in the meantime, you can check them out on the website. But strategy number five is making you wait. Because the longer you wait, the more impatient you become. The more you want to get the car and go home. The longer you wait, the less you want to sit around negotiating. You don't want to have to have them go to their manager again and wait another 45 minutes, right? This strategy gets abused a lot. This is how something that takes 15 minutes on Carvana.com takes five hours at a dealership. And so when he finally did come back, he had this kind of celebratory demeanor And he had the updated invoice in his hand and he was like, look, man, I got the manager to get rid of these things for you. And he gives me the invoice. And at first I'm like, oh, great. You know, maybe we get to go home. But then I look at the invoice and see that there are still six add-ons on the list. The only two things he took off were the cheapest BS add-ons that they had on there, which were, I think, premium windshield wipers for $300. That was gone. Mud flaps. For $500, that was gone. All of the more expensive, like $800 ones were still on there. And so I'm looking at this and I just tell him, like, I want them all gone. I want the price that's on the printouts that I gave you. I want the price that we agree to on the phone. And again, he says, you know, I don't know what salesman one said, but the manager said, we can't remove any of these other options. They're mandatory. So if you've been keeping track, that's dealer strategy number two, three, and four in full swing in that one sentence, right? Which actually brings us to dealer strategy number six, which is them being very firm on what can't happen. The language they use is very much like, we can't remove any more options. There's no way we can remove this one. And the way they phrase it makes it sound like there's no wiggle room for you to doubt or question things. And so that creates the kind of mentality in your mind where you're thinking, well, if he's saying they absolutely can't go any lower, then I guess I'm either paying this price or leaving. And I don't want to leave because I want this car. So maybe I accept this price. And this is a complete fallacy, which brings us to the second buyer strategy, which is don't believe anything they say, because everything is negotiable. 
You just have to be persistent and not take what they say at face value. So I tell him again, like, I don't need these things. I don't want them. And his response was, they're already installed. There's no way we can remove these. And that's when my BS detector goes off, right? Because their website lists cars that has dealer installed options. And this car didn't list any. Like the ones that had a dealer option on it were listed as such. Like the website is actually quite transparent as to what's included and what isn't. And on top of that, they had pictures of this car online. And this car did not have mud flaps, which is one of the things that he put on the invoice sheet, then later removed. And then they had a couple items on there that were clearly warranty products. Two-year windshield protection. That's if you damage your windshield, they'll replace your windshield, right? So how can that be already installed? So I start calling them out on some of these items individually. And that was a big mistake because this is a red herring. It's a trap. The, the minute you start nitpicking individual items, you get sucked into their game because all of the items are bullshit. But now you're negotiating and arguing on single line items instead of the whole bullshittery. Because when you argue against one item and not against another item, you sort of imply you're okay with the other item. And like I could sort of sense I'd taken a wrong step, but I couldn't quite pinpoint it yet. And I couldn't help myself from picking out some of these items because it was such an easy thing to call them out on things that were obviously bullshit. But now you're very much playing their game. And so buyer strategy number three is focus on the big picture. You've got to avoid the minefield of little traps that they lay so that you can play your game, not theirs, right? You want to negotiate on your terms. And that was the mistake I made because I called them out on the interior protection plan, which to me was like, it's a protection plan. So I don't need the plan. Like I don't need my interior to be insured against damage, you know? And, and I tell him that I don't want any of these protection plans. And he's like, we, we can't remove it. It's already being applied. I'm like, it's a warranty. How is it already applied? And he's like, no, 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 no. This protects the interior of your car from any damage. And I'm like, right, I, I don't I don't want that protection plan. He's like, it's already applied. And I'm like, what? And, and this goes in circles for a little bit until eventually he explains that the interior protection plan is supposedly a spray that they use on the inside of the car. They spray something on the seats, the dash, all of it which protects your interior. So that's why it's already applied. And I mean, at that point, I was sort of exasperated because really, I'm 99.99% certain that he just made that up. But I have no way of verifying or disputing this, right? They could have sprayed water on the interior of the car and called it a protection plan. And that's where I think it's important to be aware of dealer strategy number seven, which is that they will blatantly lie straight to your face and make up a protection plan and say that there is a spray being applied on the interior. And, you know, it's clearly a warranty, but now it's maybe an invisible spray. I can't verify it, right? There's no mud flaps on the car, but I can't go out there and verify right now there's no mud flaps, you know? And the premium wiper blades they try to charge me $300 for, pretty sure every car just gets those dealer installed wiper blades and they're calling it premium and charging $300 for it. Sometimes. And they're telling me all of these things are mandatory when clearly they're not. So just be prepared that they will be firm and unambiguous 
in the lies that they tell you. And uh, that was something that I mentally wasn't ready for. Like, I didn't expect this to happen so openly in America. Like, I didn't have my tourist guards on, you know? So anyways, it becomes clear at that point to me that arguing individual items is futile because they can always make something up to justify the item. And I realized at that point that I'd fallen into their trap. And now I'm trying to just crawl myself out of the hole and shift them back into the big picture, which is that I was told a price. I have printouts, two phone calls. This whole thing is nonsense, not these individual items. The whole fact that you've tacked on any add-ons is BS, right? And that's where I sort of shift strategies a little bit because I've had time to kind of get my heart rate down a little bit and absorb what is happening right now and try my best to get out of that fight or flight mode and and think logically. And as I do, I remembered this negotiation book that I read. And there's a lot of books on negotiation that will try to sell different techniques or theories. But this one really spoke to me because it was quite down to earth and very practical. Like you can apply a lot of these things in your day-to-day life. And the book is called Getting More. I don't remember the, the author, but I'll put a link to this on the website as well. But one of the strategies in the book that they describe is specifically when you're in this kind of a scenario where the person you're negotiating with is just spewing nonsense, right? Lying to you. And so he recommends when that happens is to essentially call them out on it. So I ask the salesman, like, is this how you do business by lying to customers? Because you guys told me one price and now you've added all of these add-ons, right? Is this your company policy to lure people in and lie to them? And so that's really buyer strategy number four, which is to try and hold them to some level of standards because they're obviously lying. They are lying as openly and blatantly as the guy that was trying to sell me sunglasses for 800 rupees when he just sold my Indian friend the same pair of sunglasses for 100 rupees. But it is still America. The company can't have an open policy of blatantly lying to you, right? They can't actually own the lie. Like it has to be masked or obfuscated in some kind of a way. So call them out on it, right? Like hold them to standards. So I say that to him and his new justification is that Salesman one made a mistake. They shouldn't have confirmed that price to you. And so if you've been following along, he's now pulling some of the earlier strategies of deferring blame so that he can remain the good cop, right? He's layering it now with salesman one being the one that made the mistake, not him or his manager. And so this goes back and forth a little bit. And it seems like we're getting nowhere. My wife and I kind of just look at each other and we've been married a while now. So we kind of know what the different looks we give each other are. And uh, that look was just, I'm okay being done here if you are. And yeah, so I say to him, like, if you can't get rid of these add-ons, I think we're done here. Like we've got dogs waiting for us at home and this wasn't what you promised over the phone. And I'm just really disappointed that you guys conduct your business this way. And so that is buyer strategy number five. You got to be prepared to leave and actually mean it because they will sense it if you don't mean it. It is their job to sense whether or not you are ready to leave. And we were ready to leave. All right, guys, I know we've been going for a while and I I think I'm starting to lose my voice a little bit. So this might be a good stopping point to kind of cut it off here. And we will continue this in a part two, probably after the August recap. But in the meantime, I'll have the various buyer strategies and dealer strategies 
as well as links to the marketplaces and the companies that we talked about for selling your car on the dailychurnpodcast.com. So check them out over there. And as always, thanks for listening to the podcast. And if you have questions so far, feel free to leave a comment. But otherwise, I will catch you guys next time. See ya.